Romans chapter 1, we're looking at verses 26 and 27 this morning. You'll find it on uh, page, let's see now, 939 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, So let's listen then to God's Word. Romans 1 and verses 26 and 27, 939 in the Bibles in front of you, if you're following that way. So let's hear God's Word. For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. This is God's Word. She wanted to see me, uh, to talk to me. She asked to come and see me, talk about a personal matter. This happens with a fair degree of regularity as a pastor, so of course I said yes, and she came into the office. She sat down, and immediately she began by this. She asked if she was allowed to come to church. Well, <laughs> yeah, of course you're allowed to come to church, I said. You know, I'm, I'm inviting you warmly. Come on Sunday. I look forward to seeing you then. The, the, she then uh, followed up with a question. Uh, she then said that she, uh, you know, to describe and give some background to it, she said that she was from an evangelical home. And she had experienced same-sex attraction for as long as she could remember. And she was currently in a relationship with another woman. Then she looked at me and said, so am I still allowed to come to church on Sunday? And so I said, well, of course. You are warmly invited. I welcome you to come to church on Sunday. I want to hear you. I want to hear what you've got to say. I want you to hear what I've got to say. I want you to hear the gospel as I preach it on Sunday. Well, then she followed up a little bit further. She pushed me a bit further. So then she, she said, well, could I become a member of the church? And so then I explained to her, as best I could, our view of Jesus' teaching about sexual relationships taking place within the marriage of one man, one man and one woman for life. Pointed to the, the Bible text where Jesus teaches that and And then said, well, see, from our point of view, anything outside of that we see as not following the biblical standard. I could still see her face. She was a beautiful young woman. And she looked at me and like that began to weep. Why am I not accepted? She asked. She wanted to come to church. She wanted to study the Bible. We are preaching the Bible. Why am I not accepted? It's another woman. She came from a non-Christian background. (laughs) Amazing story. Her her mother was in a same-sex relationship with with another woman. And and this other student was also in a same-sex relationship relationship. Well, she met some of the people going to our church. They, they just loved her. They invited her to the barbecues. They hang out with her. They, 
enjoy being with her. They introduced her to her friends. They just loved her. They, they introduced her to Jesus. They studied the Bible together. She met Jesus. She fell in love with Jesus. She read the Bible. She found what Jesus taught about sex. It's Jesus. I love him. And so she followed Jesus' teaching. This woman is now happily married. Her and her husband are in a thriving Christian ministry. Two women, (laughs) two different stories, one Bible. So, what does it say? Well, we come in our series in Romans to one of the most important Bible passages on this contemporary issue. And the image that I have in my mind to try and explain it to us is a bit like a Christmas tree lights. In our home, we, we have the Christmas tree up and we turn on the lights and sometimes we'll turn them on at night and the next morning we forget that they're still on because the light's outside and you can't quite see the lights are on. And then as it gets darker in the evening, you realize you have the Christmas tree lights still on. They begin to shine in a similar kind of way. The darkness of this passage, actually you see the light of Christ shining. Contextually, textually, culturally, pastorally. Let me explain how that works for us. First, contextually. Now, in its context, this passage is actually a message of hope for all. See, the point that Paul's making in context is that we are all sinners, and therefore we may all find hope in the Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul says, as he concludes, this rendition of all the things that God gave us up to when we rejected God as our creator and went our own own way, he concludes in chapter 2, verse 1, saying, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, well, at a point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you do the same kind of things. In other words, though our sins may be different sins than these ones in our passage this morning, We're all sinners, chapter 2, verse 1. And then as he carries on with this section, it concludes around the middle of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 25, he says, well, we're all justified freely by God's grace through Jesus' death on a cross if we receive that gift by faith. We're all sinners. We all need Christ. In its context, this passage is a message of hope for all. That's the point that Paul is driving towards Jew and Gentile, Roman pagan society, Jewish religious society, sins that make some people feel, I can't even talk about that, and other sins that we domesticate. Uh, Either way, they're all intended to lead us to a profound sense of need and hence to Christ. I love the story of a rather unusual faculty meeting on a college campus as the dean is talking. Suddenly an angel appeared and he tells the dean that in return for his exemplary behavior that year, the Lord is going to reward him with his choice of infinite wealth or wisdom or beauty and it's up to him to decide. And without hesitation, of course, the dean of the college selects infinite wisdom. Done, says the angel and disappears in a cloud of smoke and a bolt of lightning. And now all heads turn towards the dean who sits surrounded by a faint halo of light. And at length, in the silence, one of his colleagues whispers to him, well, you know, 
infinite wisdom, say something. The dean looks at them and says, I should have taken the money. (laughs) Now, you see, many a preacher has skipped over this part of Romans. They come to this bit and they wonder whether they should have taken the weekend off or given the passage to someone else on the team. (laughs) But you see, actually, in its context, the darkness of these verses is designed to let the Christmas tree lights shine brighter. See, when we realize our own sin, not just judge someone else's, then we, you and I, can appreciate Jesus for who He is and what He did in a far greater and more profound way. You see, whatever you have been through this week, whatever your darkness may have been this week, Today, as we are in church now, I offer to you on the, on the authority of God's Word, hope and joy in Jesus Christ. See, that's the context of this passage. That's the overall trajectory that Paul is leading us towards, contextually. Second, textually. Well, the text of these verses presents what the author of the leadership book, Good to Great, called a Stockdale paradox. Jim Stockdale uh, was a highly decorated admiral who was tortured in prison. And when Stockdale was interviewed, he described what it was that he thought enabled him to win and why others did not survive. He said the people who did not make it were those who thought it was going to be over quickly and they were always saying they'd be free tomorrow or the next day. And they became disappointed. In the end, they just gave up. The secret, Stockdale said, was to face up to the harsh reality of the situation and at the same time hold unwaveringly onto the conviction that in the end you would triumph. The author of the leadership book noted the same pattern in companies that went from good to great. They faced up to the brutal facts and at the same time held on to the unwavering belief that they would prevail in the end. Winston Churchill put it like this, there is no worse mistake in public leadership than to hold out false hopes soon to be swept away. Another business leader said that his job was to turn over the rocks and look at the squiggly things underneath. Well, we need to do that in this passage. And... Know that the gospel of Jesus Christ will prevail. There's hope. Now look at these squiggly things. And so many people have tried to avoid them, haven't they? Some scholars have said this. Some have said the other. Some have said that this passage, Paul is merely addressing what is known to history as the practice of pederasty. That is the ancient Technique, practice, behavior, culture of an older man having a relationship with a younger boy. And they said, well, it's just talking about that. It's not talking about other things. And therefore, we can avoid the conviction that is in this passage that such things are sinful. But I'm afraid logically that doesn't work because Paul also mentions women. (laughs) It cannot only merely be about pederasty. 
Other scholars have tried to avoid the squiggly things here by doing something different. They said that Paul's addressing only what you feel is unnatural. When Paul talks about doing what is contrary to nature, they've just said, well, Paul's talking about you know, what feels natural, what may not feel natural, and he's trying to urge people to do what feels natural in their own sense of what is right. Well, that's not what Paul is meaning here by nature at all, I'm afraid. In, the, in its context, Paul is talking about the Creator God and how He's made the world, and so nature is, is the way He has made it. Not the way we feel about how he's made me or you or this world. The way he has made it's an objective reality around us that Paul is appealing to. You you really cannot avoid the squiggly things, and nor do we want to avoid the squiggly things in this passage. We need to turn up the rock and say, yeah, this is sin. Much as we also say, well, we're all sinners, we all need Christ. So first, contextually, this passage shines the light of Christ by showing us that we're all sinners and therefore leading us to love and follow Jesus who died for us. Second, textually, this passage addresses a particular aspect of that sin which illustrates a kind of Stockdale paradox. That is, as we confront this tough reality as a church, as Christians, as individuals, and at the same time holding also onto the truth that the gospel will prevail. <laughs> whatever's going on in our culture is no news to God, that God has hope. Whatever's going on in your life is no news to God, that there's hope for you. Was you hold on to that as well, at the same time, the gospel will prevail as well as we look at the, the real reality of this text. Then we can see more of the greatness of Jesus. So let's see how that works then as the light of this gospel shines culturally and then pastorally. So third, culturally. Contextually, textually, third, culturally. I love the story of Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt used to find the long receiving lines at the White House a painful endurance test for him as a president. He, he complained that no one ever really paid any attention to what he was saying. He'd try and say something politic or uh, kind or profound, and everyone would just treat it as a platitude, and they'd ignore it and wouldn't pay any attention. He would complain about this. So one day, Roosevelt decided that during a reception, he would try an experiment. To each person who passed down the line to shake his hand, he would murmur instead, I murdered my grandmother this morning. You know, really fast, I murdered my grandmother this morning, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And each of the guests responded, sure enough, with things like, marvelous. <laughs> Keep up the good work. We are proud of you, you know. God bless you, sir. And so it went all the way down the line, this long greeting line for the president. And uh, it wasn't until right at the end when the ambassador from Bolivia that his words, uh, Roosevelt's words, were actually clearly heard. And rather surprised, nonplussed, the ambassador then leaned over t- and said, well, I'm sure she had it coming, sir. (laughs) See, in our culture today, the Bible's teaching has been misheard. And perhaps you find that in your own school or in your own relationships at work. You try and say what's truth here, and it's misheard. It's misheard as anger or being 
homophobic or against certain kinds of people or whatever. It's been misheard. Now, let me try and explain why that is culturally. In this text, in its context, presents what I call three touchstones. A touchstone was a stone used to identify precious metals. You'd you rub the, the gold against it, and it would identify whether it was gold. And these three touchstones reveal the gold of the gospel. One, freedom of religion is the issue. See, very few people outside of the Roman church would agree with Paul's statement in Romans 1, verse 26 and 27. You have to remember that. This is written to pagan Rome. No one but those within the church would have agreed with what Paul was saying. It would have been outrageous then, as it is now, to write these words. Yet, in Romans 13, Paul advises the Christians to be subject to the governing authorities. How come, Paul? Well, in my view, it's because the Roman state at that time was allowing the gospel to be preached. You can trace the story in Acts for various reasons. The Roman state took a decision that it was going to allow, at least for a time, the gospel to be preached. And so Paul says, well, be subject to the authorities. They're giving you this freedom to preach Christ. Similarly, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy to ensure that in public worship, like when we're meeting now, that kind of situation, those who follow Jesus pray for those in authority to govern well, that we may live peaceful lives and the gospel may flourish. Again, he's saying, look, pray that there'll be this freedom of religion, that Christ may be preached and Pray for those in authority, even pagan rulers. However, early in the Christian story in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John are commanded to stop teaching about Jesus, they do not comply. They refuse to submit to the authorities. Judge yourselves whether it's right to obey you or to obey God. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard, they reply. How do we put those two things together? It seems to me that as long as there is a context of freedom for the gospel to be preached, we will submit to the authorities. In fact, we'll do more than that. We will urge and campaign and pray for the freedom for the gospel to be preached. We will not quietly lie down. In fact, if anyone tells me to stop preaching Jesus or stop teaching the Bible, I will refuse. God, give me strength. Throw us in jail, if you will, but we will preach Christ and Him crucified, and nothing and no one will stop us, even if it means reading out in public worship Romans 1, verses 26 and 27 in the Bible. And we'll fight for the right for freedom for other people to believe freely and advocate their own views. For we realize historically, and I, I don't have time to explain this, but the church has tended to flourish in a society where there's been freedom for views to come to the surface because this is the truth. <laughs> so we want there to be freedom. We want a free society. Freedom of religion is the issue when we campaign. Two, Christ is the message. See, the point of this text and its context is to lead us to realize who Jesus is and what He did and so follow Him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, put it like this. He said, it's heresy to ask a non-Christian to behave like a Christian. No one can live a born-again lifestyle who's not born again. We cannot expect someone to do so. 
And I wonder how much of contemporary engagement around this issue in our culture has uh, either miscommunicated or got this the wrong way around. In effect, we've been heard to be saying that we're asking non-Christians to behave like Christians in certain areas while not in other areas that are perhaps um, less offensive to us, like anger or greed or selfishness. No wonder we've been misheard. Our goal is to introduce people to Jesus, as was Paul's goal in this section. Christ is our message. People need to meet Him, and then they'll be changed, and then they'll follow Him in discipleship, which comes to the other third touchstone to reveal the goal of the gospel, which is church is the discipleship zone. Once someone becomes a Christian, how do they work out this and any other issue in a way that's authentically following God and wholeness in the church? See, this text cannot be understood outside of the context of the local church to which it was addressed. This teaching, this practice can only be effectively modeled and furthered within the context of a local biblical church and discipleship within that church. I'm a part of other parachurch organizations. I support them. They're worthy. I preach for them. But the local biblical church is the discipleship zone. It's in this context where we work out what it means to follow Jesus, even the tough areas of repentance like this one. So those are the three touchstones for engaging contemporary culture from this text. And in its context, one, freedom of religion is the issue. Two, Christ is the message. Three, church is the discipleship zone. As I say, together they help reveal the gold of the gospel because they shine the light of this text in its context into contemporary culture today. We're now presenting Christ to the world. Fourth, pastorally. Contextually, textually, culturally, fourth, pastorally. Now, anyone who has attempted to address these matters pastorally will know how delicate they can be. I'm reminded of the pastor who was considering a big step forward uh, for uh, the church. He thought to himself, well, some of my people would follow me off a cliff, and that encouraged him. Then he thought, yes, but some would only follow me to the cliff so they could push me off. And then he balanced it with the final proposition, which seemed to him to be the middle ground. Most would at least come to the cliff just to see what would happen. Now, the pastoral aspects are made even more delicate by the nature of communication from a pulpit. There's a limited ability that I have standing here to express my genuine understanding that every situation is different. And there may be not only personal questions then that you have for you or someone else you know in your own family or friendship group, but also intellectual questions that would take a long time to tease out. And that's partly why today I'm having a question and answer session immediately after the 11 a.m. service, so that all who would like to talk about this further for themselves or others grapple with the nature of this text and its context and understand the issue further can ask any questions they want, and I can attempt to give off-the-cuff impromptu answers so there can be further interaction at greater depth and greater application. 
I think it was King James I who one time became annoyed at a preacher in his court and exclaimed, either make sense or come down out of that pulpit, to which the preacher replied wonderfully, I will do neither. It's easy, isn't it, when you sit in a pew and you listen to someone like me preach to transfer our own annoyance or pain or frustration with this kind of issue and how it's worked out in your own life, perhaps defending it, perhaps being tempted by it, and sort of project that onto the communication (laughs) Rather than pray that by the Spirit you would see the light shining like Christmas tree lights in the darkness. So I've been particularly careful this week to pray for you all. I do that every week, but I I was reminded by the story of F.B. Mayer once said that the secret of the great ministry of Samuel Martin, for whom Westminster Chapel, a very large church in London, was built, originally built, was that every Friday Samuel Martin would lock himself in the building and would go around kneeling in every seat after every seat in prayer for those who would be sitting there in worship. And you need to pray that you'll be able to hear this text in its context this morning, whether it's been, you've been hurt by trying to defend it, whether it's a personal temptation issue for you or for your friends or family. Here are four pastoral principles that I think will be helpful for the Christian. I emphasize for the Christian because those who do not yet know Christ first need to meet Him, and I'm not asking a non-Christian to behave like a Christian. If you're not a Christian, I want you to meet Jesus and let Him speak through His Word on this matter. These are four pastoral principles, like the four points of a cross for the Christian. One, expect change, but not necessarily immediately. Expect change, but not necessarily immediately, perhaps in terms of your own personal desires. See, if becoming more like Jesus was always immediate in terms of how we felt about it, then Romans chapter 12, off your body is a living sacrifice, and all that comes after that would not be necessary for Paul to have written. Now, there are people I know who have been immediately healed of this and their desires have been changed, this and other struggles. I've known people like this. I know people like that. But there are others I know for whom that has not been their experience internally. We can all expect complete change into Christ's likeness one day in glory. But in the meantime, we're gradually becoming more like Jesus. So we expect change in terms of our internal desires, but not necessarily immediately. Now, you can and must immediately repent. But the working out of that repentance into thorough Christ-likeness is the process of a life for all of us. And it's never completed this side of glory. In fact, the more holy you are, the less holy you will think that you are. For the closer to the light, the more darkness you see in your own life. So we expect change, but not necessarily immediately in terms of the internal workings of our desires. To resist condemnation, resist condemnation, but embrace the conviction of sin. Now, I must emphasize resist condemnation. 
Romans 8 verse 1 says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ Jesus, you're not condemned. It's so hard to communicate this accurately. One wise pastor said this, the hardest thing he found to persuade people was this, to persuade non-Christians that they were sinners and to persuade Christians (laughs) that they were not condemned. Satan is the great accuser of uh, God's people. But you who are in Christ are not condemned. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation, none at all. Why? It's all taken by Christ. You are not condemned. You do not have guilt. So resist condemnation. But you need to embrace conviction of sin. How do you do that? Well, the difference between conviction of sin and condemnation is that the conviction of sin always leads to the Savior. It always leads to light. It always gives hope. Satan tempts you to despair. Christ, by His Spirit, shows you that He is worthy to be pursued above all things and is sufficient even for that sin. Conviction shows you Jesus, causes you to love Him and go to Him for more and more light and love and healing. So you embrace conviction of sin, but you resist condemnation. There's no condemnation, none at all, for those in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, don't go away condemned this morning. Resist condemnation, embrace conviction of sin that will lead you to fresh love of Jesus and fresh commitment to follow Him. Three, find discipleship within the context of a biblical church. I've mentioned this already as a third of the three touchstones for cultural engagement but it's also a key principle pastorally that Paul's writing these words in the context of a local church, pastorally. So if you wish to become more like Christ in this area or any other, find discipleship within the context of a biblical church. Discipleship does not necessarily mean being open about everything all the time to everyone. There's a difference between authenticity and too much information, TMI. There are matters that are appropriately private, or at least appropriately to share only with those who are within that inner circle of private communication. Otherwise, you share with everyone, you'll just expose yourself to ridicule or hurt. Some people are not mature enough to deal with your sins. Not everyone can handle every situation, and some matters are to be wrestled through between you and Jesus within the context of an experienced mentor or pastor. But on this matter, particularly here in this text, discipleship within the context of a biblical church is the way to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, as it is at some level with anything whatsoever. So then perhaps this is a good point for me to remind you that if you're not in a small group already in this church, now will be a good time to make a fresh commitment to join a small group. For receive who you are as a gift, not as a curse. Now, once again, this is going to require some sensitivity of communication and careful open ears to hear what I'm trying to say. Remember, I've already said that what feels natural is not the issue. It's what is natural according to what God has made. On the other hand, people who have been made a certain way by God or feel they've been made a certain kind, way kind of God are not being cursed by God. They have an opportunity to receive that trajectory in their life and for it to become a new movement of blessing for themselves, their families, the church, and the world. You know, marriage is not the ultimate. Falling in love 
and having the happily ever after myth of Hollywood is not the ultimate. Paul, of course, was single, as was Jesus. Jesus was completely fulfilled as a person. He was the ideal human, but was single. Paul viewed his singleness as a gift. Some people are single for a season, others are single for life. Perhaps that sounds a very hard thing for me to offer to you if you struggle with this issue. (laughs) You know, I meet with many, many married people. I also have single people sometimes complain to me about being single. Sometimes I wish I could get the two together in the same room. I would like the single people to hear the married people complain about how awful it is to be married, and I would like the married people to hear the single people complain about how awful it is to be single. Do them both a world of good. After some marriage pastoral counseling sessions, I almost want to say to some single people, cheer up, it could be worse, you could be married. (laughs) Maybe your uh, gift is singleness. And that, by the way, is not an excuse if you're sort of 23 and need to get on and find a good wife to marry. You can't use that as an excuse, you know. But It's important to receive who we are as a gift, not as a cursed. There are opportunities that single people have that married people do not have. I, I remember one friend in a healthy marriage, a good marriage, telling me after he'd been away at a conference for a few days how hard he had been able to work from early in the morning until late at night and then saying with a big smile, it was almost like being single again. We should be uh, those who honor the marriage bed, but we shouldn't be unrealistic about its challenges. Realistic about marriage and realistic about singleness and receive singleness as a gift, if that is to be uh, yours, not as a curse. God has made you the way you are for a particular purpose that you are designed to fulfill and has given you particular gifts that can have a particular blessing on the church. Again, I can't get into all the details of this from the pulpit, and we can have conversation after the 11 a.m. service or afterwards. There's a whole uh, set of resources of books that I found helpful that are available on the, on the book table as well. Here are the four pastoral principles then as a reminder, like four points of a cross, shining the light of this text in its context. Expect change, but not necessarily immediately in terms of your desires. Resist condemnation, guilt, but embrace conviction of sin. Find discipleship within the context of a biblical church. That's how it's going to be worked out. That's the context that God has provided, not some other place, but the biblical church. You can't expect to receive the help you need if you don't go to the help that God has provided. Receive who you are as a gift, the gift of marriage or the gift of singleness. Now, there'll be some here who perhaps say uh, it's all sounding a bit too soft to counselors speak. Well, this text here stands in all its authority. It speaks a hard word to ancient Rome as it does to contemporary America. And perhaps it, 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 to contextualize it for you sounds like you're dodging the issue. I'm not at all. I'm putting it in the context of the Bible. Perhaps it feels too counselor speak for you. Maybe you've heard or agree with what uh, someone called Hans Isnick was said to have discovered about uh, counseling. He said that if you have emotional issues, 
The probability of you being well in one year, if you see a psychoanalyst, is 44%. A psychotherapist, 53%. A psychiatrist, 61%. And no one at all, 73%. Well, of course, that's not helpful, is it? Biblical counsel, professional, pastoral, within the discipleship context of biblical church, and we recommend counseling, all that sort of thing, within the context of a discipleship of a church, resisting condemnation and guilt, but embracing conviction of sin, receiving who you are as a gift, is an expression of this text and its context that lead us to Christ, who alone can provide us the help we need. Well, that's most likely of all to lead to health. And in eternity, it's, it's guaranteed. It is helpful, you know, to keep that eternal perspective. I started with two stories of women. I'll close with two stories of men. One was an experienced man of some standing in his chosen career who out of nowhere, to his friends at least, suddenly came out of the closet and refused to change his lifestyle. What went wrong? I thought about that question long and hard since... In retrospect, he broke every one of the four pastoral principles from this text in its context. When he did not find immediate change, he gave up because his expectations were skewed. He was feeding a certain way. God hadn't helped him. That was it. He he had not embraced the Stockdale paradox, facing the harsh reality of the tough situation which he was in, and at the same time, holding unwaveringly unto the belief that in Christ he would prevail. Repenting immediately and working it out in the subship context of a church. Instead of embracing conviction of sin and resisting condemnation of guilt, he did the precise opposite. He embraced condemnation of guilt, which just made him angry, and he resists conviction of sin, which would have led him to hope in Christ. Because he was secretive about this struggle, there was no discipleship context for him to help him live a life of repentance. Perhaps we failed him there. It's important then to assert that church is not for perfect people. (laughs) Some ways, church is like one giant AA group and SA group, Sinners Anonymous. Except we're not anonymous to each other. This side of glory, we're all recovering sinners or repentant sinners. There's more to it than that, and even that statement needs to be fleshed out in various ways. But I think you get the sense of what I'm communicating. And then finally, he received uh, who he was, not as a gift, but believed that God had a different plan for him than the biblical plan of godliness and holiness. That's one man. There's another man I know. He also struggles with this issue. He's working it out as a single man in the context of discipleship relationships in a local biblical church. He's resisting condemnation of guilt. He's receiving who he is as a gift. He's expecting change of his desires, but he's not experienced healing yet, and he expects that that healing will come in heaven. He's living out the Stockdale paradox of facing the reality 
and holding unwaveringly onto the belief that in Christ he will prevail. Let's pray together. Our Father God, perhaps there's some here who find it particularly hard to hold on to that belief that in Christ they will prevail. Perhaps there's some here who sense despair. Would you by your Spirit open their eyes to the sufficiency of Christ, to give them the power to live in a, a holy way, work that out in the context of a biblical church help them to receive conviction of sin but reject and resist condemnation of guilt if they are in Christ Father God perhaps there's some here for whom this is their main issue and perhaps they don't really know Jesus at all would you show them Jesus Perhaps, uh, Father, they'd be like the woman caught in adultery, everyone else condemning. And uh, he who is out sin, let him cast the first stone, and everyone else goes, and the woman is left face to face with Jesus alone. And then Jesus says, go and sin no more. Oh, Father God, would you cause uh, such a person this morning to stare face to face into the eyes of Jesus and hear those words, go and sin no more? Would you help them to embrace that conviction of sin and to work out a life of discipleship in the context of a biblical church? Father, perhaps there are some here who are feeling the wounds of standing up in the world, standing up to be counted on this very issue, and they have been attacked, will you give them courage, fresh wisdom to know what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and to face up to their own Stockdale paradox, the harsh reality of the situation in Rome and in our own culture, but also to hold unwaveringly onto the belief that in Christ the gospel will prevail. We pray for your help in these matters, and we ask these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.